from a secret U.S. Army air base in Greenland. Six P-38 Lightning fighter planes and two gigantic B-17 Flying Fortress bombers rose into the early dawn. The date was the 15th of July, 1942, and they were headed for a British airfield to join the war against Hitler. Heading east over the polar ice cap, they ran into a massive blizzard. Flying blind, they heard that their first planned refueling stop in Iceland was socked in, forcing them to return to their home base. As they approached this, however, critically low on fuel, they found that it too was closed. Realizing that their only hope was to crash land in the icy wastes of Greenland's east coast, they desperately searched till they found a break in the cloud cover. The nose wheel of the first plane to land hit a crevasse, which caused it to flip. Fortunately, the impact on the canopy of the 8-ton P-38 was cushioned by snow, and the pilot's injuries were minor. After they saw this, the rest of the squadron came in with their wheels up for belly landings. The planes were only lightly damaged. All the crewmen were rescued unharmed by dog sled about nine days later. However, the planes had to be abandoned where they had slithered to a stop. The Lost Squadron by Carl Wieland Originally published June 1997 In the years to follow, a few people occasionally recalled the legendary Lost Squadron of 1942, but it was only in 1980 that anyone thought of a salvage mission. U.S. airplane dealer Patrick Epps told his friend, architect Richard Taylor, that the planes would be like new. All we would have to do is shovel the snow off the wings, fill them with gas, crank them up and fly them off into the sunset. Nothing to it. It actually took the two of them many years much money, and several failed expeditions before the first real clue came. Using a sophisticated form of radar with the help of an Icelandic geophysicist, they located eight large shapes beneath the ice in 1988. As a small, makeshift steam probe began to melt a hole in the ice, expedition members watched dumbstruck as more and more extensions were added to the hose, some 75 meters, that's 250 feet worth, before reaching the first airplane. None of the discoverers thought that the planes could possibly be buried under more than a light cover of snow and ice, and why would they? After all, the impression the general public has is that the buildup of glacial ice takes very long time periods, thousands of years for just a few meters. In fact, ice cores in Greenland are used for dating based on the belief that layers containing varying isotope ratios were laid down somewhat like the rings of a tree over many tens of thousands of years. It is the same sort of conditioning which makes many people instinctively think in terms of millions of years for coral reef growth, for stalactites to form, and so on. This is despite ample demonstrations that these things do not need vast time periods. Epson Taylor realized that it would be impossible to dig or blast through this astonishing depth of solid ice, which had built up in less than 50 years. They returned in 1990 with a low-tech implement called a Super Gopher. This 5-foot-high device, wound with copper coils through which hot water is pumped, 
melted a four-foot-wide shaft into the ice at about two feet an hour until it struck the wing of a B-17. A worker lowered down the shaft, then used a hot water hose to make a cavern around the plane. To their disappointment, the huge bomber was crushed and mangled, beyond worthwhile salvage. Dejected, the pair returned home. However, only a month later they realized that the more solidly built P-38s would have a much better chance of having survived the ice's weight. In May 1992, they returned with fresh financing from investors in a high-precision effort. And true to expectations, the P-38 they located seemed in superb condition. After many weeks of intense effort, the wings and fuselage were brought to the surface through a large opening made by using the gopher to sink four more holes side by side. The pieces were helicoptered to a Greenland port, then sea freighted to the U.S. for final restoration. This turned out to be more difficult than imagined, as the plane had actually been more damaged by the crushing weight than met the eye. However, when operational again, it will be using around 80% of its original parts. Interestingly, the planes under the ice were in exactly the same shape in which they had landed, except they had been moved by glacial flow three miles from their original location. Evolutionists and other long-agers often say that the present is the key to the past. In that case, the 3,000-meter-long ice core, brought up by the Joint European-Greenland Ice Corps project in Greenland in 1990 through 1992, would only represent about 2,000 years of accumulation, allowing, of course, for compression of lower layers, which is also offset by the inevitable aftermath of a global flood namely much greater precipitation and snowfall for a few centuries. There is ample time for the 4,000 or so years since Noah's day for the existing amounts of ice to have built up, even under today's generally non-catastrophic conditions. A number of readers have contacted Creation Magazine about the sensational information in this article, recalling the common school experiment in which a wire tensioned with weights sinks through a block of ice. Some wondered whether the planes could have sunk to that depth. However, the wire sinks through the ice in the experiment only if it is done at room temperature. Do the same experiment with the whole apparatus in a freezer, which would mimic the situation with the planes, and it does not work. The common explanation for the wire and ice experiment is that the pressure of the wire melts the ice is wrong. Such a device does not generate through pressure to melt the ice. Heat transferred from the air in the room by the metallic wire, which is an efficient conductor of heat, melts the ice, which is a poor heat conductor, to allow the wire to cut through. It is true that the pressures involved would not cause the planes to descend through the ice, but there is a simpler and more visual way to determine whether this has happened or not. To attain forward directional stability, Aircraft must have their center of mass ahead of what is termed their aerodynamic center. The center of mass is moved forwards by sighting engines and other heavy elements towards the front, and adding control surfaces such as tail fins whose surface area pulls the aerodynamic center to the rear. A simpler equivalent is the aero, weight in the nose, flights at the rear, which attains forward directional stability by the same means. The consequence is that, barring control mechanisms acting, an aero or aircraft will pitch forward and fall nose down when allowed to fall freely through a medium weather air, water, or ice. 
So if the aircraft had indeed moved through the ice, they would all have been found in the same nose-down position, and they were not. So the planes could not have sunk through the ice, which becomes ice as it's compacted. As usual, it is not the facts which speak against the biblical account of a recent creation, but the mindset of our culture. Millions of years, as they say, are casually tossed around so often that we unconsciously perceive all natural changes as taking long time spans. That is why many are amazed to hear of facts like 180 meters, or 600 feet, of layered sedimentary rock buildup in months after the Mount St. Helens eruption on the 18th of May in 1980, or when hearing of real precious opal formed in months, or coal from simple heating of wood in mere months, or about the flag, tent, and sledge left at the South Pole by Antarctic explorer Amundsen in 1911, now being more than 12 meters. 40 feet under the ice, or this deeply buried lost squadron. However, we should not really be surprised when the facts show that things generally happen more quickly than expected within the old earth mindset, since thy word is true from the beginning, and every one of thy righteous judgments endureth forever. That's Psalm 119, verse 160. People want to understand where we all came from, so the scientific community, religions, and education systems have each rose to the challenge to give answer to why we're all here. One way or another, we are all limited by the number of facts and opinions we can gather and assess. Evolutionists and creationists should both be aware of the facts, though, no matter what, before they draw conclusions or debate origins and reality itself. If you want answers to evolution's most perplexing claims, you'll want to get a copy of the Creation Answers book. It provides biblical answers to over 60 important questions that everyone should be informed on, like what about radiocarbon dating, and how did all the animals fit on the ark, or where are all the human fossils, and how did bad things come about. Not only does the book answer your questions, but equips you to effectively respond to those that resist the gospel due to the theory of evolution. The Creation Answers book is a must-have for everyone's library, so get a copy today at creation.com store. I am Joseph Darnell. For all of us at Creation Ministries International from around the world, thanks for listening.